This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It's time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we teach you how to defend the truths of Christianity. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are going to be talking about the evidence that shows the soul exists. But before we do that, I just want to go over, you know, there's been a lot that's been happening politically. And one of the things that we concentrate on in this show is the Christian worldview and the impact that it ought to have on all areas of life, including politics. And the last two shows, we haven't had a chance to talk about politics. A lot's been happening, especially with this latest health insurance takeover, really is the best way to describe it. We are really on the front lines of a war of ideas. Uh, and ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have bad, bad consequences. consequences. Exactly. So we are trying, with this show, we want to prove to you, not just tell you. We're not here just to tell you that Christianity is true, uh, that uh, we have great ideas. You ought to base your society, your political views on the ideas of the Bible. We're here to prove that they're true. It is really Christianity versus totalitarianism. Uh, That's the alternative. And it doesn't matter whether that totalitarianism is the atheist regimes of socialism and communism, or whether it's some kind of Islamic extremist uh, totalitarian way of living. It is Christianity that provides the political freedom Uh, the view that freedom is valuable and that we ought to have it as creations of God. The the left focuses on selfishness. They're all about uh, actualizing yourself, living for yourself, um, doing what you want, uh, what your heart tells you, and and it's all in the guise of freedom, interestingly enough. But yeah, it's, exactly. It's the I mean, mind syndrome, and whatever works for me works for me, and, and the heck with you. That's right. So, so here's an attractive thing for selfish people. How about we force others to pay for our insurance, our medical insurance? That sounds great. That's what we did. Just passed a law that at a point, at the point of a gun, I'm going to get you to pay for my insurance. So, the Christian worldview is what led to the American experiment of liberty, self-government. Now, what do you mean by self-government, Keith? Well, it's not the idea. Self-government doesn't mean uh, just that people, we're a democracy, and so we make the rules. That's not what self-government is. Self-government is I govern myself. You govern yourself, and guess what? We don't need much of a government because I'm not going to lie, cheat, and steal. You're not going to lie, cheat, and steal. You're going to control yourself. You're going to self-govern. And then we need very little government. But if you know the uh, Socialist Democratic Party 
which you know is really a coalition of special interests, uh, comes along and develops this view of selfishness and you know uh, actualize yourself and do your own thing. Then once you've got a population that is totally into themselves. You can manipulate them by appealing to envy and jealousy and, uh, you know, let's get back at those mean, uh, rich people and uh, let's take their money. Let's take their things. That sounds great. I'll vote for that. Are you so talking th- about redistribution of the wealth, Keith? Absolutely. Are you talking about haves and have-nots? I'm talking about the hostile takeover of the health insurance and the whole approach is government is the answer. Mm. And that is stage one thinking. That is like a chess player who only thinks one move ahead. What happens? You get destroyed because you're not paying attention to the next move, what people will do in response to your move. So we have this government is the answer. Um, You know, let's fix it. So the fix winds up being, winds up breaking things. Uh, You know, the bigger the government the smaller the person winds up being. If you have a big government, guess what? The government does everything for you. They take care of the poor. They take care of the sick. You don't have to do that. You don't have to give to the poor. You don't have to be kind to your neighbor. You don't have to help people because the government's doing it. It's just like Scrooge in Christmas Carol when people came around asking for money. Why should he give any money when there's already poor houses and workhouses and prisons, Right? The bigger the government, then the smaller the individual can be. That's something that uh, Dennis Prager says on his show during the week. So the more government there is, also the less liberty you have. And liberty is very, very valuable. Liberty is given to us by God. It's not something that other men give us. You know, it is something given to us by God, and we have to fight to protect it. Uh, liberty is not an easy thing. This is an American experiment. It's lasted 200-plus years. Will it last into the future? Can we self-govern ourselves, or do we have to have a monopolistic, controlling uh, government to run our lives for us? That's the big question. That's the American experiment. Well, I find it interesting, Keith, that there are about 19 states, I believe the number is thus far, that are actually suing at a state level to block this legislation that's going to mandate uh, uh, this insurance reform that uh, the Democrats have shoved down the throats of the American people. Also, about 75 percent of all of the polls that have, that have been done by outside agencies, CNN, um, um, Gallup Poll, and so forth, have shown that the, United, the American people are actually against this uh, legislation in its current written form. And it you know, I described it as a hostile takeover. And do you remember how the left uh, in newspaper articles always talks about business hostile takeovers and how wrong that is, how morally wrong that is? Well, here was a hostile takeover of an industry, the health insurance industry, against bipartisan opposition. But yet they still insisted, they 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 insisted they were going to shove it through. This makes me think about two days ago when that Russian, that Polish jet flying to Russia crashed and killed the president and his wife of Poland and all those people. Because what was the pilot doing? He was told twice, I'm told, to 
uh, not to land. It was foggy. They did not have the right instruments to approach this. It was Western plane, uh, Western um, instruments with a uh, Eastern landing system. They couldn't land by instruments. They had to land visually. And he circled the run the runway. He tried landing twice before, but he was determined to get that plane in, and he wound up killing everybody. And that is a beautiful metaphor for what the Democratic leadership has done to the healthcare uh, insurance industry. And, uh, you know, it's just done terrible damage and is going to do terrible damage. So, um, you know, the normal state of human beings down through the millennia is poverty and violence. It takes a lot of work to keep us from the brink of collapse, and it takes a lot of liberty. So if you want to decrease violence, we need more Christianity. We need more Christian ideas actually applied to the government, more freedom. If we have a bigger God, then we have a smaller government, and that's what we need. That's what uh, we are here to do on Evidence for Faith I am Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. You can call us at 609-398-1020. You can also email us at evidenceforfaith.com. Go to the link, check out the podcast, check out the website, and there's a contact uh, button there for you to email us. But this is where you come for the evidence that Christianity is true. And one of the things we're going to be talking about today— is the evidence for the soul. Do the listeners know that there is scientific evidence for the soul? Keith, before we get into that uh, discussion, and it's going to be a really interesting show, I wanted to make a couple of comments about uh, the healthcare uh, uh, debate. Absolutely. Because the debate still uh, goes on. If we go back 75 years ago, okay, before there was a, a terrific need for uh, costly health insurance, okay, by and large, the family took care of family members who were in need, uh, both physically right. and medically and so forth. Now, families knew what the circumstances are. If somebody was out of a job, uh, the family would support them, and certainly the church and the community would have fundraisers and so forth. You, you still get a feeling for some of that even to this day. But by and large, community, church, and family took care of their own because they knew the intimate details of what was happening to an individual or the baby that was sick or whatever. Which made them perfectly qualified to do that. Correct. Instead of somebody outside. So once you get big government stepping in and doing this, there's so much room for abuse where people who really are not hurting or who are not qualified really for that that big handout um, are using the system and abusing the system. Right. And so there's a whole lot of room for, for that. Whereas the intimate details of somebody's family circumstance, be it a, a job, finances, health issues, and so forth, was very clearly known to the immediate people who took care of that individual. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things we're going to lose in this this big government uh, thing. Now, I think you wanted to mention a couple upcoming things, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, let's for, do that now. Well, first and foremost, I, I, I wanted to uh, mention that uh, this past... Uh, week we did a uh, a live show oh. at the First Baptist uh, Church in Egg Harbor City on death by crucifixion. Right, that was last uh, week's show. Yep, we did a, a resurrection breakfast uh, for the men's group there. It was very well attended, and uh, the response was very good. 
Uh, so we wanted to invite our listeners uh, to consider that sort of a project, even at your own church. Uh, Keith and I are more than willing to uh, to travel uh, to do a live broadcast in front of the church group, which would then air that Sunday afternoon. Um, uh, we are, in fact, contemplating doing uh, a similar event at the same church, First, uh, First Baptist Church in Egg Harbor. Uh, the men there want to put on a breakfast event uh, in advance of Mother's Day, the first uh, the first Saturday of June, uh, we plan on being there uh, to do a similar breakfast event. Breakfast would be from 8 until 9, and then uh, we would go live uh, in front of the audience from 9 until 10, and then have the uh, uh, the uh, broadcast done the following day. Uh, so that, that turned out to be a very, very nice venue uh, for the people at hand, and it was certainly a different experience for us to be in front of a live group. Uh, yeah, we, were, we were able to field questions, and it was very, very well received. Yep. So we will get uh, the audience more information um, as that approaches. Great. All right. Well, what about the soul then? Uh, it's you know been historically something that the Christian uh, church has uh, always taught um, that there is a soul uh, that you have, you're really two parts. Uh, you are a soul uh, and a body, you know, so uh, people are not just one thing. They're not just a body, and somehow uh, their thoughts or their consciousness is a result of their body. They are actually two things, a soul and a body. And even when we die, the soul continues to exist. Now, we are going to cover some near-death experiences that talk about that a little bit later in the broadcast, but even when we die, the soul continues to exist, and um, uh, ultimately uh, it will be reunited with the body. And this is also a biblical teaching. Uh, when the body is resurrected, it will be reunited with the soul. Right. An example would be Jesus, mm -hmm. right? You know, um, what was he doing when his body was dead in the tomb? Uh, you know, he was still there. He was still doing things. He still existed. Uh, you know, he wasn't um, uh, gone for three days and then came back, right? He was still there. So there, there was something about Jesus that continued to exist even though his body was dead. Uh, and, and the other thing is uh, Paul uh, has said himself to be absent uh, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right. So the implication there is that the body's dead, the body's buried, uh, or the body's cold, but yet the soul has uh, advanced to a point uh, uh, somewhere in the heavens to be with uh, the Lord. Right. So, but, you know, there's a problem because there are Christian uh, leaders, Christian scholars, Christian teachers um, who have given up on the idea of the soul, the existence of the soul. They become essentially physicalists that believe that only physical things um, exist in the universe. And so your soul isn't really, uh, you know, a non-material thing, a non-material substance. It's actually just uh, a, like an emanation from your body. Right. And, and some say, uh, even say that the uh, concept of the soul is just uh, read back into Scripture and that it was something that came from the, uh, the Greek uh, writings and even pagan philosophy. So they, they've caved under the pressures of 
uh, academia, and certainly to an extent uh, by evolution and theistic evolutionary thought, um, whereby they, they say that, uh, you know, the, the body is something that's evolving, mm-hmm. and there's really no place for a soul to evolve, therefore there right. can't be a soul. Right, and this is something that uh, Darwin was actually well aware of, and he discussed this um, as a problem for his theory. If there is such a thing as a soul, his theory doesn't address it. His theory is only about where human beings' bodies came from, you know, that they developed over this very long, very gradual progression uh, from other types of animals. And so if you then are going to say, well, there's this immaterial thing called the soul that's implanted maybe by God uh, into the human being, now you've got God doing something, God um, active. And he says, well, if you're going to allow God to do things like that, then God might have been active the entire time uh, through the evolutionary process. So he says he believed, therefore, because it conflicted with his theory that he couldn't allow the concept of a soul and that there, that human beings had a soul. So he um, made the statement that there is no such thing as a soul, um, that you are only your body. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because evolution typically uh, addresses the physical processes of life, right. and there's no room for that soulish quality, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it makes, in the theory of evolution, it makes uh, uh, the soul a highly unlikely probability. And consequently, what happens is that people actually lose confidence in not only the existence of the soul, but by direct uh, evolution, if I can use that term, they lose confidence in the in the concepts of health, heaven and hell. Right, exactly. It's a natural progression. So it uh, undermines um, the teachings of the Bible. Um, so there's this issue then, you know, call it a mind-body problem. Are humans one kind of thing, or are they really two kinds of things? So you can divide people into uh, uh, strict physicalist, let's say, who believes that humans are only one kind of thing, they are only physical, they are only atoms and molecules, and whatever kind of um, emotions or or, uh, consciousness or thoughts or whatever it is about yourself that you want to call yourself, that is all just a reflection of what's going on uh, electrochemically inside your brain. But that doesn't address the bigger issue, Keith, because we know intuitively that we're more than just a physical conglomeration of, of chemicals and charged atoms and physical processes and chemical reactions and everything else. Right. So you would be a dualist. Well, I used to be a physicalist before I became a believer. Interesting. Yes. Because I had a false religion. Yep. It's called biochemistry and... Um, Medicine. So when you thought of yourself, that's kind of interesting. When you were thinking, I something, I will do something, or I think such and such, you just thought of it as this is your brain. Yes. Simply your brain. my, My brain was in charge. It's interesting because this then gives you the ability to whatever you think then that's okay, mm-hmm. because that's just your brain. You are your brain. Mm-hmm. So if your brain thinks, well, I'm going to mm, steal the money that somebody left here on the table, 
that's just your brain. It's just you. It's, you know. Well, no, the thought wasn't stealing. It was there. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't take it, somebody somebody else might, maybe. Right, right. So um, so those are the two camps, the, the physicalist uh, and the dualist. So now we have to um, try and figure this out. Well, can science help us here? Um, can science distinguish something immaterial from the brain? Yeah. Well, well, really, in, you know, in a um, definitional sense, let's say, no, it can't, uh, because science deals with physical things. It deals with cause and effect. It deals with experiments. It deals with um, actual physical objects and measuring them, quantifying them. So... Uh, science really is kind of out of its realm in the first place to say that there is no soul because that's not science's field. So, so science actually ought to shut up about whether or not there is a soul. Um, so the scientist who says there is no soul, uh, there is no inner uh, life, then that's he's already out of his field. Yeah, he's out of his domain because it's not something that he can actually— put his fingers on or measure. Mm-hmm. They're into quantifiable um, items or at least describing physical properties and characteristics. Right. Once you're beyond that, you're, you're out of your domain. Right. Okay, so the soul then either belongs in the spiritual domain or at least in the philosophical domain. Right. And, okay. And the philosophical domain is where we can go now because right. in the philosophical domain, we are allowed to uh, use our minds to try to uh, in a sense, do mental thought experiments, am I the same as my brain, or am I something different than my brain? So how are we going to tell that? How are we going to tell? Well, one way that you can tell is if your mind, um, if, if there's something that we know about your mind that is true of, say, mental properties, that is not true of physical properties or vice versa, then we can know they are not the same. Does that make sense? It's just a simple philosophical question. Either if they're the same, if the the brain and the mind are the same, then they'll have the same properties. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If they have different properties, then they are not the same thing. So that's one way and so you need to simply ask yourself, are mental properties the same as physical properties? Well, I think everybody, just by their own introspection, because you all have a brain and you all have a mind, I hope, if you're listening, I hope you have a mind, then you'll know that they are different. In fact, you actually know much more about your own mind than you do about your brain, is my guess. Uh, Anybody ever seen their own brain? You haven't even seen your brain, but you know all about your own mind, your own thought processes, your own inner self. You know, Keith, I I take myself back to the anatomy laboratory when I was in medical school with this discussion. Mm -hmm. And we dissected all the nerves, and we even used a saw to cut the cap of the skull off of our our body's head, if you will. And we actually could remove the brain in toto. And look at it. Wow. Okay, now, knowing that this guy, and we had a nickname for him, his name was Rodney. Okay. (laughs) um, 
we took Rodney's brain out and we could look at it and we knew that he had a brain, but we knew nothing about him. We didn't know what his thoughts were during his lifetime. Right. Didn't know what he did for a living. All we know is that he was dead and that but he donated. But couldn't you tell that by measuring his brain? No. Could not. What about looking at it under a microscope? All we know is that the physical characteristics of his brain, what you know, whether it was the size or the right. weight, right. whether or not there was a stroke present, whether or not there was a tumor present, whether or not there was atherosclerosis, hardening the arteries, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we could measure. Yes. That we could physically quantify. Right and isolate and even take sections of the brain and look at under the microscope. But there was nothing that we could tell about the inner workings of his brain, mm -hmm. his thoughts, his previous history, his likes, his dislikes, his emotions, the love of his life, um, all of the things that, that you and I take for granted, all the, the emotions and, and feelings and, and, and fears and, and everything that makes us who we are. We had no idea what, what went on in Rodney's head. Right. And so that's... It it just shows that there is something different. There is something more. And that's that's where we get back to the dualist uh, theory. Mm -hmm. You know, the physicalist just believes that there's a physical body and a physical brain, and, and it works, and, and therefore that's all it is. Whereas the dualist feels that there's more than just the physical body and the brain and the electrochemical properties that they have. It has to do with the very essence of that being that we call the soul. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith with apologist Keith Kendricks and Hi. physician Hi, Mike Larrakis. Doc, Dr. Larrakis, I introduced you? you this time. Oh, Did you like that? that? I'm that changing different. things up, yeah. <laughs> you can call us at 609-398-1020. That's 609-398-1020. If you disagree with us, call us. You go right to the front of the line, in fact, if you disagree with us. The people who agree with us have to wait until we're done with all the disagreeers, and then, <laughs> and then, we, do the, uh, then we do the agreeers. All right, so we're talking about the existence of the soul in the human body and the fact that you can tell they are two different things because they're different. Mental states, mental properties, do not have size, do not have shapes. They don't have electrical charge, right? Where, you know, uh, you can't describe where they're located in your head. Okay, I'm thinking of the color red. Is that closer to my right ear or to my left ear, right? There is no spatial location to these two mental states. Um, and conversely, physical states, physical properties cannot be true or false, such as a thought can. A thought can be true or false. So there's definitely a difference between physical and mental uh, properties. Therefore, they are two different things. They are not the same thing. Right. And, and, you know, we can talk about emotions. We can talk about sensations. We can talk about pleasure. Uh, there are a whole bunch of things that happen in our own mind uh, that makes it different than just the physical state of having a brain. There are processes that happen uh, inside our own minds mm -hmm. that change day by day, moment by moment. Uh, emotional upsetments, anger, rage, uh, pleasure, contentment. All of these things are not something that can be actually measured in a laboratory. Right. But yet they can be studied. Now, even, and we've heard of these kinds of studies that people have done where they've uh, you know, a neurologist will take a conscious patient and he will open up his head and they'll do very fine 
uh, electrical probes into the brain, and they'll activate different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. So uh, a neurologist can know an awful lot about your brain and even activate different parts. But then if he wants to see what happened, what did the activation do, what does he do? He asks yeah. the patient yeah, what he ex- thought of or, exactly. or what what uh, what experience he had that brought him back to a previous experience when he was a kid. That's right. What memory a, are you or, having? Or a taste or some pleasurable moment in his life. That's right. He can sit, but you know what? He can't measure it. Right. All he can do is ask the patient to subjectively describe to him what happened. Right. So no amount of measuring the electrical flow or any of that can tell him anything about what that individual is experiencing. So it again shows that there really are two different things that there is a um, you know the mind the brain and, and then there is the brain. So um you know and, and I know what my thoughts and feelings are um just by paying attention to them. See, this is one thing that makes human beings different even from animals cuz obviously animals you can uh you know uh, do experiments and show that they have thoughts, right? Well, human beings have thoughts about their thoughts, mm. right? I, I mean, we have desires like, you know, maybe an animal would have, but we also have desires about our desires, mm. right? And you never see this at any animal level. You don't see this kind of thought upon thought and and the reflect reflectiveness of how we can think. Um, you know, it's interesting, Keith, from, from a scientific or even a medical or a psychological or a neurosurgical perspective, mm-hmm. now I'm speaking, uh, you know, from a medical point of view, a scientist can't do any of that. He can't measure what your thoughts are, mm-hmm. what, what the thought processes are. All they can do is monitor brain states, okay? They can they can do that with an EEG. They can measure brain waves. They can do evoked evoked potentials there's there's all kinds of stuff that they can do in a scientific setting uh, whether it's you know a hearing test or 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 visual acuity testing uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they can measure but they can't measure uh, thought processes right so they can have all of this knowledge about the brain but they can't measure anything that has to do with your thoughts or your emotional makeup exactly now uh, sometimes said that uh, computers are going to gain um, consciousness. And uh, really, this is in the realm of science fiction. Uh, There's nothing, even in the uh, most massive, most fast uh, supercomputer, there's nothing at all like a soul or a mind. Uh, You know, computers, they say, play chess now. Well, I have some very good software at home top-notch grandmaster uh, chess-playing software. And and let me tell you, it doesn't really play chess. It's a program. Yeah. It just calculates. It's like a pre-programmed calculator that figures out uh, some mathematical formula to tell whether a certain chess position is, in the opinion of the software designer, better than another, a different chess. uh, chess board position. Move, move, yeah. And that's all that the software does. Uh, you know, computers don't think, um, they don't really read data, they take it in and manipulate it. They're not thinking about what's going on. Um, that is, a computer is more like what 
a brain is, a, you know, a chunk of meat instead of a chunk of um, uh, tubes. I guess it's not tubes anymore. Transistors, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, all it does is analyze data and then um, gives you the next maneuver. That's all it does. But something else has been happening in the scientific realm that we can go to uh, that is additional evidence that there is a soul. There is something that is completely different from the brain, and that is what we have in near-death experiences. So um, let's get into near-death experiences, but once again, I just want to let people know if you are joining us, this is Evidence for Faith, the Christian show about uh, Christian evidences and worldview. We help Christians become thinkers, and thinkers become Christians. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. You can and I would encourage you to call us at 398-1020, especially if you or somebody you know, a relative, a friend, co-worker who has had a near-death experience, and share with us what happened and what the thought process of, of that individual was when they had their near-death experience. And in the meantime, we're going to take a look at a book called Life After Death, The Evidence by Dinesh D'Souza, and that has a couple of very interesting near-death experiences in it. Uh, he talks about one 11-year-old boy who suffered a cardiac arrest, had no heartbeat, was resuscitated, and had an out-of-body experience. And in this out-of-body experience, he could see the doctors, he could see the nurses working on his body, and after his recovery, he was able to accurately summarize the whole resuscitation procedures that were used on him, uh, the colors, um, the whereabouts of the instruments in the room, even what the medical staff said to each other. And, of course, you know, there's really no way that an 11-year-old boy uh, could have known all that ahead of time. This really does seem to be strong evidence, and these kinds of examples— uh, and there are many of them. What's interesting is, uh, you know, uh, there are, people claim a lot of strange things, okay? Uh, you know, people claim to have seen UFOs, and there are a lot of people that claim to see UFOs. Uh, people claim that they um, have lived in other lives, okay, that they have memories of other lives. But what's interesting is when you research this, um, the UFO thing— uh, Turns out, you know, a lot of people with um, uh, problems or uh, things that they just couldn't explain. Um, the the uh, other future lives happens a lot in India. They have a lot of people there or places where they already believe in reincarnation. But near-death experiences seem to be very universal. They happen in all cultures. They happen to all kinds of people in about the same percentages. So there's a small percentage of people in every population around the world that have had these near-death experiences. So it's a different kind of thing. It does seem to be something that we need to take very seriously. There's a, another one uh, given in... Um, Dinesh D'Souza's book, uh, talking about a Seattle woman who reported a near-death experience after she had a heart attack, and she told a social worker by the name of Kimberly Clark, who later wrote about it uh, and published this uh, account, uh, 
that she was separated from her body and had not only risen to the ceiling, but actually floated outside the hospital altogether. Now, the social worker, Clark, didn't believe her, um, but she gave a small detail uh, that caught her attention. The woman said that she had been distracted by the presence of a shoe on the third floor ledge at the north end of the emergency room building. And she described it as a tennis shoe with a worn patch and that one of the laces was stuck under the heel of the shoe. So the woman asked uh, this Miss Clark to go and find the shoe. Clark found, she thought it was ridiculous, of course, at first, but she decided she'd go through and take a look. Um, so she went out, started looking around outside the building, and uh, had to actually go out onto the third floor ledge to find the shoe because it couldn't be seen from the window. So she checked, and it was there. So um, so really another incredible um, uh, afterlife experience that's been very carefully documented um, and these kinds of things do seem like uh, they're really true. Other accounts have been of people who are blind um, being able to see after death. So people born blind have a near-death experience, and they describe being able to see, something that they had never been able to do before. These uh, near-death experiences help to um give us some insights into the existence of the soul because when they have this out-of-body experience the assumption that we have is that it's their soul that's been separated from their body and is looking down on the whole scenario right i think that one of the most compelling examples that comes to mind of a near-death experience uh, is the case of pam reynolds now this this is a case that that occurred on august 1st 1991 and is chronicled very nicely by a, uh, a cardiologist by the name of Michael Sabom, S-A-B-O-M-M-D. And I'm going to read um, uh, some excerpts from the uh, Christian Research Journal uh, from 2003. It's volume number two, 2003. And basically what he's doing is giving us a little synopsis and some insights as to what happened. Uh, this gal, Pam Reynolds, had two huge cerebral aneurysms, okay? And she was slated to... Uh, uh, be anesthetized, and her body was to be chilled down to a chilling 60 degrees. Now, folks, mind you, when the body is less than 94 degrees, it causes death because cellular function as we know it cannot exist. Cellular metabolism shuts down at a cold, uh, a cold enough temperature. So at the temperature of 60, basically all body functions ceased to exist. Now, they were able to keep her alive because she was on a heart-lung bypass machine, and they were able to drain her uh, blood volume completely and totally into this uh, machine uh, and keep it circulating so that it wouldn't coagulate. So it was kept in a constant state of correct temperature and correct uh, physiologic mechanism so that it could be reinfused into her body at a later time. But anyway, this lady's body was completely chilled down to 60 degrees, and um, by doing that, they were able to... Able to uh, totally shrink the, the, the aneurysms in her brain so that the neurosurgeon could get in there. Now, this occurred, again, August 
1991, and Dr. Robert Spetzler was the uh, chief neurosurgeon in charge of the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, now this lady was interviewed uh, after her near-death experience, mm -hmm. and some startling things uh, came to light when she was interviewed. Uh, she was a singer, and she had perfect pitch, and she states that the first thing that she noticed when she was uh, unconscious, if you will, anesthetized deep sleep, was that there was a perfect deep pitch that she heard. Okay, now she was already unconscious, mm -hmm. and this deep pitch was later isolated to be the sound of the whirring bone saw, which literally cut into her scalp where they remo removed part of her skull and uh, were able to isolate the aneurysm. Now, the buzzing that she heard was actually the buzzing of the circular saw going through her skull, and, it, and when they went back later to investigate what pitch that this whirring bone saw would manufacture when it was at full speed, it was a perfect deep pitch. Now, that's fascinating. Yes. Because this gal could actually hear it, even though she was totally unconscious, and her, her blood volume was totally out of her body, okay, and her body was at a chilling 60 degrees. And they had EEGs hooked at, up to yes. her that were flatlined. That's correct, at 60 degrees. Plus, her ears were plugged. Her ears were plugged, and they were actually, mo she had sensor monitors in her ear canals to monitor brainstem uh, potentials. Right. Okay. So her EEG was totally flatlined. The brainstem was non-functional, totally flat, uh, and of course her heart had flatlined. Okay. And they, she, she was on the heart lung uh, yep. bypass at that point in time. Uh, but the heart again, not beating, not functioning, because they didn't want any pulsations going on inside the brain at the time of the surgery. So anyway, Dr. Spetzler was able to isolate the biggest of the two aneurysms, and he was able to clip them. Okay, her blood volume was then restored, reinfused, and the lady came back to life. Her brainstem uh, potentials came back on the EEG. Uh, the, um, uh, her her uh, brain waves, her functional conscious brain waves came back, and she was restored back to life. Okay, and then they started interviewing this, this lady. Now, the interesting thing was is that she found herself uh, being awakened in a position with this perfect deep pitch of the, the bone-wearing saw blade mm -hmm. in her head. Okay, and she was perched atop of the surgeon's right shoulder watching this whole thing happen, which, which is incredible, you know, when you think about it. Um, and she described it as, as much better than regular vision. Uh, yes, she said it was incredibly clear, uh, more clear vision than she, she'd ever experienced in her life. It's almost like high-def TV as opposed to analog TV, I guess. Right. You know, she said, but her vision was incredibly clear. Um, um, she states that when she was interviewed further, she said that um, she felt herself be as, as this cardioplegia and, and this near-death experience was going on, she was being pulled through a tunnel, mm -hmm. a vortex, a dark tunnel, and there was this pinpoint of light at the distant far end of the tunnel, and she could hear her grandmother calling her, okay? And as she got closer, it became an intensely brightly lit situation, and she could see figures and people talking, and she wanted to go and join them. She wanted to be in the light, but they wouldn't let her. Mm -hmm. She was not allowed to be into and completely into the light at that point in time. And then finally, when she was being brought back to life in the operating room, her uncle escorted her back down that dark corridor, and then she found herself awakening in a, in a perfectly conscious state again. It's a fascinating, Wonderful. fascinating Wonderful. case. And, and she, she also was uh, able to uh, recognize equipment in the room, yes. uh, people that she didn't recognize, 
um, and she described a lot of instruments that uh, she didn't know what their function was, but she was able to describe them. Right, and in their perfect function, yes, exactly. So th- this is one of the most uh, well-attested near-death experience, ex- uh, experiences ever because it happened in a teaching facility. Um, they immediately investigated it right away. They checked into every possible um, way she could have learned about, like the bone saw, she described how it it had came in like a socket set with a bunch of different size saws. Well, no one had ever shown her that in her preoperative teaching. No one showed her what this stuff was like, and she described it in uh, incredible detail. You know, you know, it's even more fascinating, Keith, uh, because we we in in science and medicine uh, do case control studies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she in in her second surgery, uh, was subjected to a different set of circumstances in a different scenario, Mm -hmm. uh, almost like a uh, control situation. And and let me give you the specifics of that. Uh She goes back to the operating room nine days later for the second aneurysm to be repaired. But because most of the um, pressure that was being exerted by the biggest of the two aneurysms had already been fixed, Mm -hmm. they didn't feel the need to put her through the rigors of a 60-degree body temperature and everything else that she had gone through in the first one, nor did they feel that she needed to have the heart-lung bypass machine uh, functioning. So she went through a standard neurosurgical uh, procedure um, nine days later. So there was no hypothermia, and there was no cardiac arrest induced. Okay, and while under anesthesia, testing of the brainstem and the cerebral hemispheres showed normal function during the operation, and she had normal and well-maintained responses throughout. No near-death experience was reported right? because she was not subject to the, let's say, death-like um, uh, clinical situation that she had experienced nine days earlier. Right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And you can check us out on our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. We are talking about the evidence, the existence of the soul, and what science has been able to learn about the soul uh, uh, these days. Well, one of the complaints about these near-death experiences is that, you know, if the biblical view is correct, then how come it seems like all the near-death experiences are all good, right? They seem to go to a happy place, they want to be there, they're with friends and family, and, uh, you know, the Bible talks about hell a lot. Uh, So how come nobody has any near-death experiences where they go to hell? Well, actually, uh, that's not true. There have been many documented cases of patients claiming that they had gone to uh, an incredible place where they were uh, incredibly uh, uh, tortured, in pain, suffering greatly. And uh, one of the first uh, physicians to write about this is Maurice Rowling. I remember reading this book back when it came out. It's called Beyond Death's Door. In fact, I was working as a nurse in the CCU unit, and I worked with one of the nurses who worked uh, with Dr. Rowling doing uh, some of his research and and gathering this information. And he reports a number of frightening and hellish uh, near-death encounters, and uh, other people um, with negative uh, other people have reported it, and the thinking is that the negative experiences 
are either repressed, that the mind, they are so horrible that the mind represses them, or that people are just embarrassed um, to talk about uh, what happened to them, that they had a bad experience. And so uh, when they're asked, they they won't report uh, these experiences. But other investigators have been uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson, uh, Nancy Evans, uh, Bush, and they've issued a report called Distressing Near-Death Experiences. Um, there was a British researcher, Margot Gray, uh, in her study called Return from Death, also reports another a number of dark and gruesome near-death experiences. So again, fitting with the truth of the Bible and the truth of Christianity. Well, Keith, let me, let me just throw this out there, uh, and I want to get into uh, the free will argument, if okay. you will, relative yep. to the soul. All right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose the question to you from a, a naturalist, uh, physical science perspective, mm-hmm. okay? So, so let, me, let me try throwing this uh, out there. Okay, if I'm just a brain, mm-hmm. okay, even, even with consciousness, I'll, I'll grant you that, then all my behaviors are fixed by my brain, my genetic makeup, the environment, mm-hmm. uh, all of my uh, past and present experiences, okay, and physical, phys- the physical objects that my brain is interpreting uh, behave by all the natural laws and the inputs that we would expect in, in our own uh, life experiences and everyday living, okay? Free choices, however, are going to require that uh, I am more than just my body, Yeah. okay? Yeah. Now, here's a problem, okay? If, if I am my body and I am an immaterial mental substance, where does that leave me with respect to free will? Yeah. The only way you can have free will is if there's something immaterial in you that is telling your physical part to do something. Like, um, Mike, would you please raise your right hand? Or should I pick you up at 3 o'clock to be in the studio by 4? Right. You, You... make a free will choice, and your body actually does what your mind told it to do. So there again, this is actual evidence that there is something different, you know, uh, from the soul to the brain. And believe it or not, Mike, this has been demonstrated on PET scanners. Hmm. Now, PET scanners are um, positron-emitting tomography. This is a new type of scan. It's been around now for uh, at least one decade, and it's very, very useful in examining the brain because they can use this to see the electrical, the flow of electricity through the brain. And there have been several different neurosurgeons, neuro uh, neurologists, who using PET scanners have documented the existence of a soul, of a mind that controls the brain and not the other way around. If your brain is all there is and your mind is a a product of your brain, then the brain is in control and the brain tells the mind what to think, how to behave. But what these PET scanners have shown is that they can introduce new thoughts new ideas into your mind, and your mind will actually rework your brain and redesign it. And you have one of those books, um, uh, 
written by Dr. Schwartz, a neurologist, is called The Mind and the Brain. And he shows in this book that uh, mental activity not only affects physical outcomes, but that it also reconstitutes and reprograms the neurons in our brains. And um, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz has had tremendous breakthroughs in the treating of OCD, and uh, you know, which is um, like the character Monk on the TV show, um, uh, obsessive compulsive disease. And in the past, they used to try to desensitize people by, you know, if you're afraid of spiders and you want to overcome that, they would bring a spider into uh, near you, uh, you know, and slowly try to acclimatize you. And that's very uncomfortable and hasn't been very successful. But Schwartz developed what he terms cognitive therapy, in which patients learn to refocus their minds away from the compulsion and to redirect their thoughts and actions to some activity, ideally something more pleasant. And not only did these treatments show impressive results, but Schwartz has also found that they had the effect of rewiring the patient's brain so that he no longer experienced the paranoid and destructive OCD urges. So in other words, patients weren't just modifying their obsessive thoughts, they were actually modifying their disordered brains. So there is something inside of you that controls your brain, your mind. Mental, now another example, uh, physician, do you not tell your patients that mental stress can contribute to high blood pressure? Oh, absolutely. So your mind, and what about the placebo effect? Absolutely. That is your mind controlling mm-hmm. your physical body. Patients think they are getting medicine, and therefore their bodies respond as if they actually did. Mike, do you know about something called the nocebo effect? The nocebo effect. No, teach me. Well, this is what happens to a person's body when he believes he's been infected or contaminated. Mm. Guess what happens? He gets sick. He thinks... Because he, it's a nocebo, he's given a sugar pill, but he thinks it's going to make him nauseous. He actually becomes nauseous because his mind controls him. And that, you know, this is... So, Keith, tell yes. me, what is the soul? What is the soul? Give me the definition. you got the, 30 seconds. The soul is that the entire real you that contains your, your uh, mental processes, your emotions, your will and your faculties that interact with your body also has a spirit. So I have a body, and I also have a spirit. That's me, the soul, which is the real me, the all of me. So we've just given you evidence that there is a soul. It's now time to take care of it. Start reading your Bible, go to church, become a Christian. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. 